you know, it just is uh, is wanting something, right? Um, that uh, that fulfills you in a way, but you know, realizing that it may not be the thing that fulfills you in the long run. Um, I, I mean, I think that's a hard thing to do. I will say though that just because there are better, you know, spies and uh, and cops out there to do the you know the work that you're describing doesn't mean that you can't contribute to their process, right? Beyond just the the funding, I, I think about how. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Shane Smith. If you missed part one, please go back and hear about the millions of dollars his business contently has done with uh, all sorts of content marketing geniuses and um, the books he's written and the academy he's launched at shanesnow.com. Um, but I want to just kind of pick up where we left off, Shane, and, and maybe jump into this a bit more. Um, thinking about humility and leadership and smart cuts and kind of putting it all together, you know, before we started the interview, I was telling you, hey, you know, I I really feel like maybe one of the patterns we can copy is, you know, look at Red Bull or look at Bloomberg. You know, these guys didn't do just like fluffy content marketing that people ignore. Like they actually became the media. And, mm -hmm. you know, the Bloomberg salesman selling a terminal never has to tell people who Bloom Bloomberg is. You know what I mean? Like, right. you oh, know, yeah. Red Bull, like it's not just selling drinks. Like it's actually a profit center for the business. Their marketing program is a profit center for the, for the company, you know? And I know it's not like you, you snap your fingers and you're a media company. Right. But to me, when I think about what are the patterns that have the highest likelihood of the highest return, and it just feels like, man, if we were able to, you know, follow your guys's lead, where instead of just getting involved in content marketing, you guys are going to the, the best and brightest you're getting, New York Times, Washington Post journalists to help people do their stuff. To, to me, I'm thinking, you know, I have made some pretty big mistakes in the past by being really excited to be the smartest guy on the team and be the guy with the answers and all this stuff. And I feel like, well, maybe this is my first question. When it comes to choosing the humility to, to slow down and maybe let the rest of the team grow their creativity and the humility to hire people better than yourself instead of just saying something like that. And any advice for maybe people who who have excelled at things in the past but have come to the realization you came to that, you know, one smart guy will never will never win against entire teams of of well oiled machine. Yeah, so I mean, there's a few things in in what you're talking about that I'd I'd love to address. I I think that there's there's a danger in thinking so much of ourselves that uh, that that we go into the overconfident place of I if you want something done right you got to do it yourself and um, I'm the smartest one who can handle this thing. Um, it's it's just a dangerous spot for a leader to be in. Um, and so you know the in terms of risk management, it's less risky to have a group of people who are great um, who have a lot of potential to see further together than you could see on your own. That's just a less risky option. And focusing your effort there is I think really smart. And it gives you an excuse if you are, you know, you're a driven person and you want to succeed and you, you know, however you're measuring your success, 
for you know your your accomplishments or your business or whatever it is you're doing if you shift from a me i'm successful if you know we do well to a the team i'm successful if the team does well and if the thing we're building does well uh, kind of mentality, it, it makes it easier to uh, to hire people who are smarter than you or who have specialized skills. And it makes it easier to see your job as empowering them, smoothing the way so that they can do the work that they need to do and encouraging them to have, you know, the kind of productive conflict of ideas that, uh, that actually will unlock that potential. So I, th I think there's some humility to that. But I think even if you need to frame it as this is what's going to make me successful by having the team helping the team to, uh, to, you know, be smarter than me, then so be it. But I do think that, you know, what you're getting at is, uh, you know, with the humility thing, I'm convinced, and, and you know this from seeing my, my, my writing, that intellectual humility is one of the biggest skills that leaders can develop to really change uh, their teams. And intellectual humility is, in a nutshell, being open to exploring other viewpoints, uh, being able, being curious about things that other people aren't curious about, and being willing to revise your viewpoint in light of new information. And that being able to do that requires you to let go of your overconfidence, or requires you to put ego in in a bit of a backseat. It's extremely hard, but I think, you know, this brings me to the other part of what you're saying. I think all things being equal, who we do business with is, uh, you know, is going to be a function of a few things. Uh, you're talking about companies like Red Bull or like Bloomberg, you know, companies that have amazing products, um, you know, we, we are happy to do business with companies that, um, that are a great deal. We're happy to do business with. And sometimes, you know, one company is an amazing product and a less good deal. And one company is a crappy product and a, and a better deal. And, and we choose one or the other. That's often what things boil down to. But I think the third leg of the stool is, uh, who we really want to do business with. And if we're talking about say content marketing, uh, you know, the function of creating amazing media and stories is uh, you make people want to do business with you. So all things being equal, your product, you know, tastes the same or just as good as another energy drink, but you make amazing content. So I want to support you and do business with you. That's the nature, I think, in many ways of content marketing. And I think with leadership and teams, there's a similar thing where you can work with a leader who is absolutely effective and a jerk or just like miserable to work with. And you'll work with them because they get results done and, you know, the team succeeds and maybe it helps your career or whatever. Or, you you know, it's it's nice to, to work with leaders who are, um, you know, not a pain, right? Like you, you like a boss that, uh, that doesn't get in your way or whatever, or, you know, isn't a jerk. Um, even if they're not that effective, you know, people people will, will deal with that. But I think uh, a leader who is an absolute pleasure to work with, that you would quit your job and follow them to the next place, that I think uh, is like the uh, the the same kind of magnetism as you know as a good content marketing you know or media program. A leader who has intellectual humility to admit that they're wrong, who asks you, the underling, you know, for help and for advice, and who shows that vulnerability and who, you know, gives credit and praise and, you know, checks in on a human level rather than taking credit and rather than having to be right all the time. You know, that kind of leader is an absolute pleasure to work with. And so you'll end up getting better people to work with, which then makes the job of, you know, turning those people into a, you know, a, a synergistic team easier. So I, I think, you know, there, there's some connection between those things that, that you've been talking about. I think if you draw the triangle, like amazing uh, at, you know, the thing, easy to deal with and a pleasure 
to do business with, the pleasure to do business with is uh, is going to uh, to make the difference, whichever way you go. You know, super effective leader or super easy leader, but that's an absolute pleasure. You're going to go with them. You know, just like a company that you want to do business with because you think they're awesome. You know, that'll that'll help override you know the uh, the desire to save a little money or you know whatever it is. So I I think that that is a is a fundamental kind of principle, and I think that humility is at the core of it, the humility to give, whether we're talking about content or help, um, and the humility to change and to, uh, to adapt and to see your job as empowering other people. I think actually, you know, just to continue this rant uh, one step further, Bloomberg and Red Bull are really good examples in that they they do give all of this content, but they're seen as companies that empower you. You know, they're not like the the cable company that you just feel like they are a vampire just you know, <laughs> trying to get as much out of you as you can. Both these companies are giving a lot of value for free um, or for very cheap. And then, uh, you know, when one's selling technology terminals and, uh, you know, and the other's selling an energy drink, but they're also entertaining you and informing you and giving you so much that, uh, that it's, you know, it's the, the reverse. I mean, it's, it's like a boss that gets, that extracts as much as they can out of you. Maybe like you, you don't follow them to the next place, but a boss that gives so much and that clears the way and that, you know, empowers you is, uh, is someone who you do want to work with as much as you can. Yeah. Such a good point. Um, you know, I'm thinking about, and I know on part one, I, I went on and on about how much I love your book, Smart Cuts. And uh, actually, until last night, for the last three years, <laughs> the password to get into my computer was Smart Cuts 2017. <laughs> it was like it was like my daily reminder. Okay, am I just mindlessly doing what I'm doing? Or have I thought hard enough? Is there is there a way to outthink this situation? And uh, is there a smart cut? You know, try to be my daily reminder. But it's not anymore, so nobody can hack me today. If you get a time machine, you can have all my stuff. Okay. Well, that's, that's so great, and I'm, I'm. This is the first time anyone has told me something like that. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Got to get my meaningful repetitions in, right? So I'm. Yeah. I'm thinking about the smart cut here, and uh, I would love to have you weigh in on a decision. We can make this like a personal therapy session. So. I look at myself and I think I am naturally wired to love the spotlight and to want to be a big deal. And, you know, it's like, you know, crack for me. Okay. And then I went and worked for those Arbinger guys. And I really feel like I experienced the benefits of humility. And like, I really saw this great other side of giving that up and not needing the limelight. Right. And Right now, I look at building this media company and, you know, our podcast today is, you know, the number three top innovation show on all of iTunes and and that's it once a week. You know, if we go back to daily shows or something like this, it could grow a lot. If we made it a video show, it could grow a lot, right? And so I weigh out this idea of wanting to build a media empire um, so that we can put free ads for our charity Child Rescue and for our investment company, Greystoke, on it. And I think okay, I could do this in the way of like nobody, you know, not too many people are, can tell you the name of the guy who started Red Bull, right? Like he didn't have to be a personal personality driven brand. You know, they built great teams who did great stuff and it's not about the founder, right? And then I look at a lot of other brands, you know, Richard Branson has been a huge benefit to Virgin, you know, by, by being willing to be a face, you know, as humans, you, you more than anybody talks about the value of stories, right? Like we love stories and we love, you know, the specific human from the story, right? 
And so I think, well, should I, should I become the face of this more? Should I, should I take that role? And because it can maybe accelerate the business. And then my other thought says, well, that's a dangerous slope for me slipping back into lack of humility. And, Mm -hmm. uh, just to complicate things, our charity is like the most fun hobby I've ever had in my life, even though it's a depressing subject. Unfortunately, my Mother-in-law is a victim of child trafficking in Santa Monica, California, and it's just really important to our family, right? So for the last decade, I've been out recruiting Delta Force and FBI and CIA guys, and we we have done things like help law enforcement with undercover rescue missions and stuff like that, right? So if I ever want to go, you know, if I wanted to do a lot of that with those guys at the point that we're financially financially in a place that, that I've got the time to... You know, I would be ruining our team's operational security to have my face well known, right? Hmm. No, but like, there's not enough human traffickers listening to this podcast for it to matter, probably. But if I go, you know, build a media business and I'm in front of the camera a lot, then it's probably not safe for me to be on one of our undercover teams, right? So I have to balance out how much do I want to be on an undercover team in the fa- in the future? How much do I want to like try to intentionally be more humble and build a system that doesn't need me? Or, you know, is it a smart cut to give up my personal interest in being on an undercover team and just pay for those things, be a face of a business and try and get the Richard Branson benefits of, of uh, trying to accelerate it faster. So that's a lot of info. I'm waiting on your really, you know, uh, insightful decision for my life here. Well, it's, it's a good question for me in particular, because it's something that I have had as a, as a dilemma as well in my, my businesses. Um, I, I think I'd start by saying that a personal brand as an evangelist spokesperson, you know, face of a movement or a company is an extremely valuable tool. Um, it's not the only tool that you can use to, uh, you know, to, to build a movement or a company. I think for me, what I've settled on is that if I have, if that's one of the things that I can uniquely do to promote what I'm, I'm trying to accomplish, um, then, uh, then I may as well use that tool and take advantage of it. It's, you know, there's, there's a few factors though. I, I think, you know, you can kind of like draw a little Venn diagram of, uh, of what you are uniquely able to do to, to help a team or a company or whatever it is. And then the other circle and Venn diagram could be, what is it that you absolutely love doing? And if there's something in the middle of that Venn diagram, then I, I think you should not hesitate to, uh, to do it. So if you uniquely can uh, grow you know, awareness for the, uh, for the charity and, uh, and the cause, if you put yourself in front of the camera more and become more of a public face and you love doing that kind of stuff, then I think it's a smart thing to do. I think if you don't love doing that kind of stuff, then you should not at all. Um, and I think this speaks to different personalities uh, as well. You know, Richard Branson is uh, is comfortable doing that, and and he loves doing it. And uh, I assume that uh, Dieter, whatever his name is, the Red Bull founder, who I, I <laughs> don't even know his whole name, some random billionaire, uh, that guy, you know. Yeah, I assume that he didn't like doing that. And and so, and I think either one is okay. I think forcing yourself to do it if it's not your, if you don't love doing it is just not going to be fun because you put yourself out there and you put yourself on the hook um, in a way that uh, that can be really uncomfortable. 
for me, I've I've grappled with this uh, where, you know, at, at Contently, I was one of the founders and I was the chief evangelist type. I'm, you know, I, I was the one doing the interviews and doing public speaking and I love doing that. But at a certain point, I think it was starting to become a little bit uh, tough because, uh, you know, especially as I, I moved more, you know, to part time and I'm, I'm not as involved, you know, as a founder and I'm just a board member. I, I'm doing other things, so I can't be representing Contently all the time. And Contently, you know, has new leadership and people that are making decisions that I might not necessarily, you know, understand or even know about. And then if I'm being asked about that, you know, or the public face of it and having to answer for things that I'm, I'm not as intimately involved in or, you know, even I, I can't think of a, a real specific example besides like one just kind of like mistake that the company made that they they fixed um, you know, but, uh, but what if, you know, the organization goes in a direction that you don't agree with or don't like or don't want to or whatever, um, and then you're the public face, you know, that puts you in a position that, that can be hard to navigate. So I think I would only use that tool of, uh, you know, the, the personal brand as evangelist if, yeah, it uniquely can help uh, be an accelerant to the, the organization if I love doing it and if I'm in a position where I have information, transparency, and control enough to make sure that uh, that I am always personally aligned with whatever the organization is doing. So I, I had this uh, this thought process as I've been, uh, you know, post-contently, a lot of what I've been doing has been public speaking and writing and all that. And as an author, your name goes on the books, so you naturally are the brand. Um, but when I launched my online training uh, academy for, you know, teaching skills for my books and and all that, I had the, the choice of what do I name it? And I decided to name it Snow, Snow Academy. And then the company itself is just called Snow um, because my face is already on it. And because I love talking about this stuff and I am in charge of it. So there's no danger of, uh, of incongruence um, or you know getting off of the same page. I think in the long run, as I build it up and you know if it turns into a bigger media company, it does... You know, I, I have, uh, you know, Disney in mind and, and Bloomberg in mind, these media companies that are named after the founder, but that at a, at a certain point, the brand is not the founder. You know, you don't think of Walt Disney when you think of Disney. Um, and I think that is an important chasm to cross at some point. And I am really far away from that right now. But but it's on my mind because it's a consideration that at a certain point, if you need to do other things, uh, you have to be able to let go of, you know, of you being the face and your name, even if your name is part of it. And so I think that's in part why I think calling my company Snow rather than Shane Snow is a smart move because Snow is a little bit more generic than Shane Snow. I can't run away from Shane Snow. That's me. I don't know if that's helpful, but that, that's my thought process as I've grappled with that very same thing. Well, I think the most helpful part of that is when you talked about being uniquely capable. And I think for me, what it really comes down to is um, I want to do the Jason Bourne stuff. And, and when my when I get to do training with my guys, it's like, you know, the inner five-year-old that still wants to be Jason Bourne just thinks it's the most fun thing ever, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm not uniquely qualified. Like, I'm good enough that they will let me do stuff. You know what I mean? Like, that they, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I'm I'm not so bad that I'm not allowed to be on the <laughs> that I'm not allowed to be on the team. Okay. But, yeah. but, you know, I've got guys on my team who, who spent, you know, two and a half decades either as uh, case officers in the intelligence community or operators in the special mission units. You know, I mean, like these guys are like, they're not just the pro athletes of this, like they're the Michael Jordans of the pro athletes mm. of this. Right. Wow. 
And so I'm a good, you know, 20, 30 years behind them in experience level. And even if I have an aptitude for it, I'm not, I'm not uniquely qualified for it, even if I am potentially uh, have the aptitudes to become qualified, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas coming up with the money to pay for counter-trafficking, that is a really scarce resource. Like yeah. they just, I, I have, we get emails constantly, Navy SEALs, uh, cops, all sorts of people saying, man, I would just love to come work for your charity. But these guys aren't independently wealthy. Like they, they, gotta, they still got to put food on the table. They can't come do it for free, right? Mm -hmm. The percentage of the world who has built the skill sets to, to either help in the aftercare side or to help with the, the undercover missions in the first place, there's a lot of those. And there is hardly anybody who has deep skill sets and the desire to go come up with the money for it. And yeah. I do look at like, you know, for whatever reason I am, well, I'm, you know, have ADHD and I'm terrible at a lot of things. I am uh, maybe significantly above average in being able to talk people <laughs> into joining my causes or being on my show or, you know, being able to get into this dinner with these billionaires or this movie star, you know, things like that. Right. Yeah. And um, I have spent decades raising tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, if I can, like, when you said unique, that was like really this thing of like, well, crap. I, mm -hmm. I have like the interest and the aptitude and it is a little more unique. Somebody who's willing to like work this hard and has the media connections and all the stuff who's willing to just go pour their own money back into trafficking out the other side of it. And yeah. there's a lot of spies and cops and people who want to help kids. And I'm not, I'm not the unique one there, you know, even though it's like, yeah. you know, like catnip to want to be a part of that world. It, you know, and it also, it speaks to the ego thing, right? That um, you have, you have a set of tools that are laid out on the table, you know, and one of those tools is this ability to, uh, to generate funding and attention for this cause and if you, you know, if you were to say, well, I'll leave that tool on the table because I want something else, you know, you, you just need to be aware that that's a trade-off. And if that is coming from a place of, you know, ego isn't necessarily always nefarious. Sometimes it's, you know, it just is, uh, is wanting something, right? Um, that, uh, that fulfills you in a way, but, you know, realizing that it may not be the thing that fulfills you in the long run. Um, I, I mean, I think that's a hard thing to do. I will say, though, that just because there are better, you know, spies and, uh, and cops out there to do the, you know, the work that you're describing doesn't mean that you can't contribute to their process, right? Beyond just the, the funding. I, I think about how, you know, so often in history, and this is part of the premise of, you know, smart pets and dream teams. So often in history, it's the outsider who has, you know, who starts to gain an expertise and knowledge in another field that comes up with the game-changing innovations, uh, you know, I think about like Elon Musk as an example that people often use, you know, of this superlative CEO. He, you know, has a little bit of physics background and he's really smart and has studied up on physics. But, you know, when he started SpaceX, he, you know, he hired brilliant rocket scientists. Um, I actually interviewed the, the first chief scientist that he hired. He, he randomly went to engineering school with my dad. Jim Cantrell. Um, and, uh, you know, he hired these brilliant aerospace engineers to do that part. But, you know, but Elon Musk learned enough and, 
and now he certainly knows enough about uh, aerospace and, and physics to, uh, to be independently pretty good at designing things, but he knows enough that he can intelligently apply his expertise in other areas to the process of building that company and, you know, and running that and, you know, and in his other companies. I, I think there's something there that uh, maybe can, can ease the, you know, the, the sadness of, uh, you know, you decide to focus on, on other things than, you know, than the field work, you know, if you're a nonprofit, you can, because you've done the field work and you can do it. And because you have this broader set of skills, maybe you can apply some of that thinking that you have from those other areas to making the field work better, to making the process better and, and empowering those guys who are out there, you know, doing that hard work. Um, and, and that's a way that you can still contribute to that side. So it's just something to throw out there. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, well, I know we're winding down here, but um, thinking about this, so obviously I've got to think about this stuff, but let's say that I do, you know, I stay involved with everything except, you know, actually being on the mission and possibly being recognized and compromising our security, right? So I, I'm mm -hmm. staying on that side and I'm doubling down on this, you know, build the media business, try to make stuff that's so valuable to, you know, the entrepreneurs out there who are maybe they've, they've got high stress because their single source of income, all the eggs in that one basket is, is stressful. So they do want some passive income from owning these, uh, you know, apartment complexes or commercial real estate with us, right? Knowing that I'm, knowing that I'm trying to, that's who I'm looking to build the relationship with that. I'm like you said, Red Bull entertains people, Bloomberg informs people, not that it will ever get that big, but what advice would you have for me as we're trying to, you know, build, build something significant on the media side? Um, what, what kind of advice would you have? You know, it's, it's 2020. There's been some great things that have happened in the last decade. Things will probably be different in the coming decade. What, what kind of advice would you have for us as knowing that that's who we're targeting and uh, in our media company growth here? Yeah. So, you know, this, this is all I've thought about for, you know, a good eight years at Contently is, you know, what, a, what's the advice and the strategy for um, building authority and, you know, getting attention and, uh, and, you know, building a following you know, in, in media and, and content marketing. And, uh, you know, just now I'm, I'm kind of back on this same path as I'm building, uh, building more out of my, my books and my writing. And, you know, I think the answer is going to be very dependent on the audience. The specifics are going to be very dependent on the audience. But I think the, the fundamental principle is that you need to reach people and you need to provide value. And so I think reverse engineering the strategy from there, um, where are the people that you need to, that you want in your audience or that you need in order to be successful. And, but I think even targeting further than that, who are the people that if you give them the right content, they will spread that content 10 X. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think that's, Right now, what I'm I'm starting to settle on for my my own, especially in this world where it's it's harder to um, you know there's just a lot more competition you know on every topic, uh, a lot of people putting out good content or decent content. So it's um, applying that sort of 10x thinking. Who are the people that if they see this, they will share it you know 
faster than, than I can share. So I just need to reach that one person so I can reach 11 uh, through them. Um, and then what is the content that for that person, they will have to share either because it makes them look good or because they're so delighted by it um, that they have to share it. And I, I think that's sort of the, the mentality from a planning and strategy standpoint that I, I think is going to be necessary, especially in kind of topically sort of what, uh, what you're talking about. Um, because otherwise you need a lot of volume and a lot of money and a lot of, uh, yeah, like consistency that is going to be, I think, uh, hard, hard to pull off, you know, even the Buzzfeeds and the Huffington Posts of the world that they, they are volume media companies that are not necessarily known for, you know, the level of quality of, of other media companies. They, they struggle because there's so much competition, uh, you know, on the volume side. So that that's what I would think about it. I've, you know, I've been doing a lot of blogging, a lot of writing, especially during this quarantine, as I have more time on my hands, I'm not giving speeches right now. So I'm not traveling. I've been doing a lot more writing. And as I've been refining my strategy, you know, there's a consistency factor. People that are, are following me are expecting stuff or, you know, I want them to expect stuff, but I'm thinking more about who's the group of people that this topic can appeal to the most. And if I can do the perfect thing for them, who are the people that will share it the most? Okay, let me figure out what they want to hear. And then let me figure out how to frame it so that they look good sharing it or so that they're too excited not to share it. And I, I can't say that I'm quite there yet with my own content strategy, but it's an iterative process. And, uh, um, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing more week over week with my, even just like my LinkedIn blog and, and my LinkedIn posts, more and more engagement on certain topics with certain people and then cultivating those, you know, super connectors um, as, uh, as part of now the group that when I write something new that's on this topic, I actually reach out to the people who are the big sharers and uh and let them know yeah. that's that's the general strategy i would say i'll also say i built a little tool um with uh with contently's uh head of marketing and uh, my co-author for the storytelling edge we built a tool that's a content strategy generator that you can get to from um and it's somewhere on contently site you can get to it from snow academy if you go to tools uh, and that's snow.academy snow right yep snow.academy click on the like explorer button or whatever and then go to tools and it's a content strategy generator and it asks a lot of questions that you got to think about um but it spits out a recommended kind of starting point for content strategy and it's a cool pdf that's uh, very uh, graphical sort of in explaining how to do it um i actually so we created that tool late last year and i used it myself like two weeks ago uh, for my own refining my own content strategy. So this free tool that you can check mm, out. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. This is great. That's great. I love it. Well, um, speaking of LinkedIn for just one minute, you know, mm -hmm. where you have to pay for reach on Facebook and these other areas. And, and a lot of people have recognized, you know, with LinkedIn still having the organic reach, it's become a bigger priority for folks. Um, does, by the way, does it share, like, is it public how many followers you have and stuff like that? Because it seems like you've done really well there. Yeah, I have like 389,000, 397,000 yeah. thousand followers. So yeah, I mean, it's what? much larger than the population of my hometown. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, having almost 400,000 followers, what's, in, what's a piece of advice for somebody who's trying to grow their thought leadership and, and authority on LinkedIn? What's just one takeaway from, you know, having grown yours over 350,000? Oh, it's, uh, that's great. Someone just 
emailed me um, about this and I wrote an email that I was, was kind of proud of that maybe I'll forward it to you after. Oh yeah, after this. I'd you love that. In the show notes. You would share it. Yeah, please. Yeah, but uh, the basic advice is you, it, it's pretty clear right now that comments are what help to keep you elevated in the algorithm. So if you're creating content, you wanna optimize for content that people will comment on because that increases the chance that it's gonna be seen. It just seems like that's how the algorithm's working right now. Like I've, I've been tracking posts, shares, or yeah, shares, comments, likes, and views, and uh, you know, kind of like day by day. And the momentum seems pretty clear that more comments has an outsized effect than more likes and shares. So, and, so and what are you? Yeah, I love that. So, are you just asking some questions in your content, or what? What does that look like for you? Yeah. So, uh, posts that ask interesting questions where you also share your personal take uh, tend to do really well for generating comments. And there's also the category. So that's kind of like the let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's that sort of category of post posts where people just can't help but say, ah, yeah, I, I, you know, I totally agree. Those tend to get a lot of comments, you know, less thoughtful ones, but a lot of uh, comments, if you can really nail the, uh, this insight just, you know, really hits hard and it can't be something generic. Um, or, you know, I think the, the longer articles that um, just share a lot of deep meaty stuff and uh, at the end, you ask people to, you know, drop your thoughts in the comments. One of the things that I think a lot of people on LinkedIn realize is, when you comment on articles, it shows up to people in your feed. This is why I think comments help you get more views is if I comment on your article, my followers see my comment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people will comment on articles really deeply because it makes them look good. Mm-hmm. So I think creating content that allows them to create comments that make them look good is, is sort of the, this high level strategy. I love it. Well, um, again, really appreciate all the time you, you spent with us here today. I, I I love talking about this stuff. I appreciate the flattery, first of all, with your password to your computer, <laughs> <laughs> and also the the great questions letting me talk about this stuff that I love. Yeah. Well, um, what do you want to close with here? What's what's something you want to close on? Um, I mean, I, I don't even know. I mean, I I think I don't know. Yeah. What do you suggest? Um, what's a what's a piece of advice you would go back and give a younger version of yourself? Huh. Okay. Um, piece of advice I'd go back and give a younger version of myself. I think, I really think that my younger self was way too concerned about what other people think and took a while to realize that being different and unique and, you know, actually leaning into what makes you, you is what makes people like you. I think I would have told my teenage self that rather than trying so hard, um, to, uh, to not do anything that, uh, that catches, you know, that goes against the grain. Um, cause if there's one principle that, uh, that underlies all the other principles in my writing about, you know, innovation and human behavior that leads to growth, it's that it's precisely being different that gets you the attention and the support that helps you to succeed. And it's pre- precisely thinking different that helps you to, uh, you know, to make breakthroughs. So I think on a personal level, telling teenage Shane Snow, hey, it's you being unique is actually your biggest advantage. Um, so, you know, you're so concerned about people liking you. Well, they're going to like you more. Some people will like you more, the ones that matter. 
if you you lean into who you are and the people who don't like that are not worth your time so i think it's maybe generic <laughs> advice but for no that's pretty uh, great for advice. me i think I, I would have really really appreciated it i don't think i would have believed it i don't know like a 16 year old doesn't you know, take that stuff to heart but <laughs> that's what i would say i love it okay thanks everybody bye now <laughs>